2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey there. Hello. Uh, this week, Evan talked to John Muallam. He has written for the New York Times Magazine for a long time. He's also written for Harper's. Uh, he's also written for a bunch of other places, Slate, um, you name it. Um, but one of the things to know about this interview is that John Muallam is not the kind of person that uh, talks about himself a lot. So I got him to do this, and uh, he has some very insightful things to say about reporting and his process, and actually it's really fascinating, things I'd never talked to him about before. Um, but he's not a guy that sort of trumpets what he does. And I personally, besides being his friend, I think that his, uh, his sort of collection of pieces is really fascinating and diverse. If he's got that like uh, humbleness, perhaps you guys did not talk about the fact that he hit like the long-form triple crown last year. He's the only person I know of who... He, he wrote this incredible story about like the origins of the high five and it ran in ESPN, the magazine. They did a version of it on radio lab. And then he also did a version of it for pop-up magazine. So he did like a live version on stage, which has got to be like the only three Pete ever for a story. I say, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. I'm here with John Muallam for the new episode of the Longform Podcast. John is in San Francisco. John, please describe the audio setup that uh, is involved in you speaking to me right now. Uh, right now, I'm sitting in uh, a kitchen. I'm sitting in Doug McGray's kitchen. Uh, Doug McGray being a mutual friend of ours and the editor-in-chief of Pop-Up Magazine. And we've got a microphone propped up on a empty egg carton on top of a wallet on top of a small ramekin kind of holstered in a folded copy of today's new york times it's what all the pros use you can actually buy that setup at some of the higher end audio shops you don't have to make it yourself right right but we didn't want to leave anything to chance so we wanted to make sure it was done just to our to our specs so uh we know each other from uh many things uh but perhaps the most interesting of which is that we shared an office uh, which I bring at the beginning because my recollection of when we shared an office was that every time I looked over in your office, you were diligently finishing another story. And every time I looked around my office, I was like reading soccer news or uh, talking on the phone with some random person that had nothing to do with reporting. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a really flattering memory of it. Uh, I don't quite know that it's true. My memory of, of our offices was that yours had like lots of framed pictures and a little like Hunter S. Thompson shrine on the fireplace mantle and uh, like a banjo and 
rugs and mine had like a silver metal table and a, and a mostly empty bookshelf and that was and that was sort of it and a chair that's because you were oriented around getting things done and i was oriented around making my office look like a place where people got things done or did interesting <laughs> things that, uh, neither of which was that, true i don't know i mean this is revisionist i think but uh, <laughs> but i'll accept your your telling of it yes i'm the uber productive almost ascetic you know monastic uh reporter writer um who needs nothing but a but a metal table <laughs> <laughs> and even that 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 was your metal table as i recall it wasn't even my table yeah i don't think i ever so, got it back no so uh, tell let's talk about that how do you go about your sort of like process i mean you're you're a full-time freelancer you've been how long have you been a full-time freelancer i mean your whole career basically yeah, I mean, since 2006, um, I've been doing this. I was in school before that. I went to the, the Berkeley Journalism School in the, for two years prior, so it's starting in 2004. Um, and I'd done some freelancing before that. But when I got out of school, I had, um, you know, I had the good fortune of doing a story for the Times Magazine while I was still in grad school. That was actually my, um, my thesis or dissertation. I don't remember what they what they call it. Um, Which story is that? And then this was a story about uh, the pre-sliced apple uh, business. That uh, was the story you did in grad school, the pre-sliced apple story? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was in early 2006, I guess. And uh, yeah, I should explain. Just this was a, a company basically that was cutting up apples, putting this magical solution on them so they wouldn't turn brown and putting them in little baggies and trying to sell them in a way that was more convenient that they could, they could be eaten, uh, you know, on the go, quote unquote. Uh, so it was sort of a, a business story about this company, but then also uh, sort of a journey into this whole uh, trend of making food easier to eat and why uh, Americans are too busy to eat a, a whole apple as opposed to sliced apples and things like that. Well, that kind of gets to what I was, uh, what I was trying to ask about your process in that you have certain stories I feel like you, there's different categories of types of stories that you do, but there's one category that I think of as sort of delving into some aspect of life or society that we sort of, everyone encounters every day, but you don't really stop to think about. And then when you start burrowing into that area, you find this entire world behind it. And the sliced apples were kind of like that. Like everyone sees these sliced apples and sort of says, oh yeah, of course, sliced apple snacks, fresh apples, you can just buy those. And, but did you, do you have this like Seinfeldian like approach where you're sort of like, Hmm, what about that? Or like, how does that kind of story come about? Uh, yeah, well, I guess it sort of is, um, Seinfeldian or maybe like in crabbier moments, like Andy Rooney-esque, um, <laughs> where, uh, I mean, with the Apple thing, it's, it was sort of interesting actually, because I, I, I tend to approach, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have thought to explain it that way, but I think there is a certain kind of story that I've done where there's kind of two parts. There's a, uh, a front story of, of people doing things in real time, you know, in this case, uh, an executive trying to launch a pre-sliced Apple company. And then there's sort of all this secondary material uh, that kind of gives the story the, the heft and the, the curiosity um, that will sustain it for, you know, 5,000 words in that case. 
Um, and in, th in that case, you know, it really just started to be this, you know, I got found all these really bizarre studies about, you know, how people eat and where they're eating, you know, percentage of meals people eat in cars and, and then all these other attempts by other segments of the food industry to make their, their products more grabbable or grab and go. Um, and it really became uh, a story about, you know, kind of contemporary American eating habits and, and also just kind of laziness. You know, I mean, I don't say that in a judgmental way, um, but just the, you know, why exert the effort to cut up an apple for your kid and put it in a bag with some lemon juice if someone's selling that to you and right. you can afford it. Um, so, so I tend to think of the stories in, in those two parts. And often I'll just have um, a running list of, of kind of, you know, two or two side by side running lists of, of some of these things, you know, oh, here's the company making these apples that struck my curiosity, but maybe I can't exactly explain, explain why. Um, and then I'll have another list like, you know, I've noticed a lot of, you know, convenience foods, you know, what's that all about? Um, and it's a matter of just keeping kind of enough of those things running in my head or just even written down in a, in a computer file until, until they start to link up. And uh -huh. I see, um, you know, oh, if, if I tell the story about this Apple company, it's a way to talk about um, you know, this whole other subject matter. So kind of, you know, you've got the story and the subject uh, finally syncing up. I mean, in that case, it had actually been, uh, I just started reporting about all these convenience foods, just, you know, gathering string and just trying to, you know, reading all these weird food technology journals and all these Herculean efforts to make, you know, grabbable macaroni and cheese, like macaroni <laughs> and cheese that you could pick up and eat in a car and um, just all these bizarre things. But I didn't, I never really found one that, was a was a real narrative or that had a, a character that that I could run with um, until I stumbled across the, the Apple guys. And there was something just so elemental about an apple, um, which seemed to make the story even more compelling. I mean, here was a food that seemed pretty convenient to begin with. Um, so so it's 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 not you know, it's not I don't really get these aha moments where I find, you know, the I, mean, I was just listening to your podcast with David Grant and he talks about finding the, you know, the perfect squid hunter. Um, and I don't always have that, you know, I may find the, the perfect apple guy, but I don't really know what he's perfect for mm -hmm. uh, right away. And it, the, uh, the real kind of thrilling aha moments for me always come when I realize um, where that guy can take you or, or how to get to something that I'm already, I'm already looking at. And do you feel like you, you kind of know that person when you encounter them, like that you, you're sort of cycling through making calls and things, and then you sort of hit the person with the right level of enthusiasm um sometimes i mean i think it depends on what the story is i mean i think uh i think people are always much more inherently interesting than they will come across uh, you know in one phone call <laughs> as being um so you know you don't i don't always think that the people i'm talking to are these fantastically you know larger than life people or or that they're you know gonna say really wonderfully introspective philosophical things um, but then, you know, when you spend a certain amount of time with someone, you start to see those other sides. Um, but, you know, some people right off the bat are, are fantastic uh, sources on the phone or fantastic characters. And, you know, just right away that you want to go and spend time with them. Some people are, are too fantastic. You know, some people are so eager to say these quotable, uh, uh, meaningful things for, for you that it's, they're almost, uh, hard to talk to, uh, you know, hard to, hard to get through a, a linear conversation with. Um, so that's, a, that's its own danger, I, I think. Well, there, there are these, these moments. So as you'll see, I'm a, I'm a close reader of the Mualim, uh, catalog, but I feel like there's, 
there's like a, a spot in a lot of stories where you drop in maybe a one sentence or two sentence quote from someone that sort of, it almost like represents their enthusiasm for whatever it is that they're doing. And I wanted to ask you about it because it can be, I have the feeling that it can be read, it always reads funny to me, like the mattress guy. Uh, you did this story about mattresses for the New York Times Magazine and mattress salesmen and sort of sleep technology. And there's a mattress guy executive in there who comes in and immediately in this booming voice says, you know, how did you sleep last night? And that's like his shtick, which to me read very funny. But I kind of imagine that if the subject reads it, they would they would not think you were making fun of them. They would just think, oh, yeah, that's me. That's that's my thing. But d- how do you view those? Yeah, you know, I, I actually think about that a lot. I mean, I, I definitely don't, um, you know, I don't see myself as making fun of um, people at all. I mean, I, I, I guess I've, I've, I have had conversations with people like that where I, I understand that sometimes things can be read that way. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's sort of a peculiar example that, that you pointed out because this guy was a marketer. Um, his name was Pete Bills. Uh, I think that was how you pronounce it. He, he worked at Select Comfort, which is the, the company that um, has the, the bed that you can pump up, you know, on either side. So it's the perfect firmness or softness. And he really was, he was their director of marketing, but he was, he had this fascination with sleep science. And that story really, you know, that's the perfect example of what we were just talking about, where it was a story about the mattress industry trying to bring some science and empiricism into what they do and convince you that they could provide a better night's sleep so that they could compete with sleeping pill companies. But it really also became a story about, you know, how, how people think about sleep and how we're sort of all aspiring for, uh, you know, the, the, the beautiful eight hour, you know, out like a rock kind of sleep. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's not actually, you know, the way our biology is designed. Um, so you had those two halves and, and in his, you know, I was originally, I think I don't remember it entirely, but I remember being originally a little put off by him, um, you know, just in terms of how useful he'd be as a as a source because he was so over the top. I mean, literally, we went out to lunch and he asked the the, the waiter, you know, how did you sleep last night? And uh, it was all he wanted to talk about. And I couldn't understand. You know, I sort of thought, well, some of this has to be a performance for me. But we were also with a lot of his coworkers and they sort of rolled their eyes, you know, as if to say, old Pete, you know, at it again, you know, so it was, it was, that was a case where I almost felt like he was that sort of person where it was almost too unreal um, and that there wasn't going to be much genuinely, genuine there, excuse me. Um, But then as I got deeper into the story and I realized, well, this is really, he's really just an exaggerated example of everything I'm seeing in the mattress industry where they're just really clamoring for some kind of edge um, some something that's going to make them look a little more, uh, you know, scientific or a little more, uh, you know, legitimate, for lack of a better word. Now that they're up against actual science, I mean, they're competing in a marketplace for sleep with doctors mm-hmm. uh, and drug companies, mm-hmm. and all they have is um, this kind of placebo effect, where they can assure you that you know their their device is so comfortable <laughs> that it will lull you into a different realm, and and his. To what degree it was performative or not, his whole demeanor was designed to sell that idea um, that he was on the job and he had this, you know, laboratory approach to what he was doing. Uh, so in that case, I just sort of ran with it, um, knowing full well that, um, you know, maybe it would be funny or maybe you know, people might read it as a little belittling to him. But that was, in fact, the image that he was very carefully trying to put out there yeah, um, yeah and that it actually had a resonance with the rest of the story it wasn't just you know because he was funny that i should include all this stuff it was actually like a stand-in for the, his entire industry yeah yeah 
And you're, I mean, you're almost like a generalist in the extreme. If, if I try to look through your, your pieces and find a common thread, it's more, it's more actually about a style of story, like with those two parts. Like I can see that in different stories. But do you think of yourself as writing a certain type of story or, or a genre or do they all fit together somehow? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've, you're, I mean, you're pretty, uh, pretty much of a generalist too. I'd say. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as uncommon as people make it sound. Sometimes maybe I'm, I'm being naive. Um, I don't know. How can I, can I ask you? How do you think about that? Yeah. I, well, I always want to be a generalist, but I feel like I, I've, I feel like I got stuck writing about certain types of technology and things and I was like working to get out of that. So for me, it was like working to get out of a beat in a way, as opposed to just saying, here's the world and I will write about it. It's most interesting aspects, uh, to me, it was more like, how can I connect this to things I've done before, but gradually move away from the types of pieces I was doing to ones that I would rather be doing. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think I had, um, I mean, just being a freelancer, I think I just found that it was, if I found something I wanted to do, I had to jump on it and try to do it. Um, and I, I guess I can't explain why the subjects were so varied. I mean, I guess that's just, and we all read about lots of different things every day. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've been working on this book for the last two years, basically all about, uh, you know, wildlife and conservation and, um, kind of cultural perceptions of, of animals. Um, and that's, that it's definitely felt like I've, you know, obviously I've been in that pretty deep in that, in that world. And that originated Um, out of, out of Times Magazine story, right? Or at least part of it. Yeah. I mean, it it kind of originated out of a a couple different stories. Um, I I had done one about this, uh, reintroduction project where they're trying to bring whooping cranes back to the U S and it's, it's just this completely over the top, um, enterprise where they've got these guys, you know, teaching whooping cranes to fly behind these airplanes and things. Um, and that really kind of opened my eyes about just how involved humanity has to be to keep these animals around. Um, and then shortly after that, I did this, uh, story for the magazine about, uh, perceptions and of, of, you know, quote unquote, gay animals, like all these, these various studies that had come out showing animals of the same sexes, uh, mating in the wild or, or, you know, co-parenting, I guess you'd say, and how that, all, all those, those studies tended to get politicized when they'd get into the, into the media. That story was, that story, first of all, had the, probably the cutest New York Times Magazine story cover that's ever been made. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it was a Jeff, Jeff Koons uh, shot all these animal couples, which was, uh, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And it was right on, uh, it was on Easter weekend, too, which I didn't really put together until just like the day I saw the magazine. But it came out on Easter Sunday, and there was some bunnies on the, on the cover. And wasn't the title so, just Can Animals Be Gay? question mark i think yeah i don't remember that was i think that might have been the title online and then they had a different cover line on the i think maybe just said they gay somewhere that was one of the maybe i'm reversing those but yeah it was uh they they packaged it pretty well i thought so those two stories kind of pushed you into thinking more about how we interact with wildlife how we interact with animals and that that kind of prompted the book you're saying yeah i mean i think the 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 whooping crane story got me thinking you know, in a very science or literal scientific way, you know, what are we actually doing to keep endangered species 
surviving. And it was much more elaborate and, you know, innovative and wacky than I would have ever suspected. And then the, the gay animal story uh, really got me thinking of, you know, what there's all these things just living on Earth out there. Uh, and we we kind of all talk about them or see clips of them on YouTube or whatever. But uh, it's and, and they tend to be really easy things to argue about or, or have these kind of far-fetched ideas about. And um, so I've, I've kind of combined those two things in the book. So I've, I've got, I guess it's the same, again, the same structure. I guess I'm just uh, repeating myself. I haven't realized until now, but the same kind of structure where you've got stories of people, conservationists on the ground, um, you know, often amateur conservationists just kind of doing anything they can um, to help certain animals. And then uh, this kind of, uh, you know, B sections or, or more essayistic or historical parts uh, you know, I've got a whole thing about the history of the teddy bear and uh, how opinions of different animals have changed in, in the U.S. over time. Um, so, again, it's sort of slamming those two things together and letting the details from the, you know, the firsthand kind of on the ground reporting, uh, just looking for, for ways that, that places that that reporting is going to open out into some of these larger questions or, or, or have parallels with, you know, histories, uh, you know, on similar or related subjects. Uh, and just trying to draw all these lines be, between them, and then hopefully, when you get it all down, uh, make you know making it that it's not too overwhelming and not too all over the place. And that's mm-hmm. that's I think always the the really tough part. And that all happens uh, in this story that you have in this week's, or maybe it'll be last week's by the time we uh, put this out. But New York Times Magazine uh, about uh, a monkey. So just give, give a little brief of what that story is about first i'm interested in how you found that one and then uh and and what it's kind of like basically about right so so the the story is uh based basically around this there's a rhesus macaque which is a species of monkey that has been living on the loose in the greater tampa bay area since at least 2009 january 2009 and uh so the story basically tracks the movements of this monkey. Uh, but what happened over time is as the, the state wildlife agency and other law enforcement agencies tried to capture the monkey because they were afraid that it was a, a hazard to people. Uh, For it, disease? There was a, yes. Th- there was a, a groundswell of uh, populist uh, sympathy for the monkey. Uh, and it became known as the, the mystery macaque of, of Tampa Bay or the mystery monkey. And there were, you know, T-shirts and there were drinks named after it at resorts and, you know, everything. Uh, Facebook page, of course. Of course. Uh, and so basically, I, you know, I just wanted to tell the story of this monkey and also the story of the people who were trying to capture it and why they were trying to capture it. Uh, and that was sort of all I knew going in. And I, I had this sense that just from reading some of the local media coverage, that it really was, uh, I don't want to say a parable because that means that there's sort of an exact, um, you know, one-to-one correlation between these two things, but there was a relationship between the way the public saw and talked about the monkey and kind of the larger political discourse right now. You know, they wanted the monkey to be free. They didn't want this wasteful, bungling, you know, overreaching government to to take it away and lock it up. Um, And it was this real weird hazy debate about rights going on underneath the story of this of this monkey um and that was kind of all i knew 
knew going in. And did you think of it going in? Did you have that theme going in that it was about freedom that you'd sort of sense that in it? Or was that more when you started talking to people, you realized these people have set this monkey up as basically an example of, of in some way, you know, what's happening in society and the monkey should be allowed to do what it wants and big government shouldn't be shutting down this monkey's life and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'll say a couple things about that. Yes, yes, I was onto that going in. And I think the only reason that I pitched the story now is because suddenly with the the RNC happening in Tampa, uh, it seemed like some, you know this last piece, of everything had just fallen together where you could do a story like that. Because, I mean, frankly, the, the monkey hasn't really been, you know, the, the, the heyday of, of monkey mania in the Tampa Bay area is, is long over. I mean, it, the monkey's still spotted, but it's not really... Um, it's not as big of a of a of a cause right now as it was, you know, say a year ago or even or even two years ago. I mean, it's been going on forever, um, and that's you know we can get to that too. But that's sort of part of what the story became about. But um, so there wasn't really a, a clear justification to the story right now, except that if you could tease out these political uh, parallels and do it, you know, right before the convention, it seemed like that would be an interesting way in. Uh, so that was my thought, but I I really didn't. And I may have pitched it, you know, leaning pretty exclusively on on that, but I really didn't think that's all it would be. Um, you know, I thought, especially just coming out of the book, I, I saw all these really interesting kind of issues about, uh, you know, wildlife and invasive. You know, the monkey is a quote unquote invasive species, but of course, Florida is filled with invasive species, and there was all these really interesting uh, kind of ecological issues and the way we categorize these animals. And in the end, I just didn't really even get to a lot of that because when I got there and the things people were telling me, uh, the political aspect of the story just became so unavoidable. I mean, everywhere I went, people were talking, bring up, you know, out of the blue things, complaints about the government or, uh, you know, just it, I don't know why. Uh, you know, I, I thought I would have to prod these things, uh, you know, prod people for these things. But um, but that really it, it just became unstoppable. Now, when you're when you were going down to do the reporting, did you have a sense that you had to see this monkey? You had to encounter this monkey in order for this to work, or the, that if you never saw the monkey, you could kind of do a write around of the monkey? I don't really remember. I mean, I can't imagine that I would have thought I had to see. I had to see the monkey absolutely, or there'd be no story because I just don't think I would do the story. Then I, I'm really conservative in in terms of you know, how comfortable I need to feel before I'll go do a story. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of like a wimp in that way. I, I don't, I want to make sure that there's nothing that could just go so wrong that the entire project would be derailed. Um, I mean, so you don't like going and sort of waiting for like one thing that needs to absolutely happen to make this work. Cause I feel like I'm, I've done several stories like that. It's, it's yeah. Which, which one nerve wracking. Um, when I, I went to uh, to Africa to write about bushmeat hunters, uh-huh. and I had sort of one chance to go out with a bushmeat hunter, and it was sort of like if this guy doesn't actually shoot anything, then I'm have the story of sort of like running around in the jungle doing nothing, which mm. is it wasn't so much that it would completely kill the story, but it was more like I just there'd be no lead, like there'd be nothing. It would just seem really empty if if there was no actual like killing of an animal in the thing. So I was like desperately right, hoping right. that he eventually killed a bird. So yeah, well, okay. So I'm going to say something that might completely contradict what I what I just said, but I guess you just helped me think of it in a in a new way. I would say I'm very conservative in terms of you know getting the guts up to go do this stuff. 
um, and wanting to make sure there's a good, a good chance of success. But I guess I'm a little more um, liberal in terms of, of, of telling myself what I need to do the story. Um, so, for example, you know, and I think the book helped with that a lot, too. I mean, you just at least for me, I mean, doing a book, I just went down so many wrong, you know, dark alleys of reporting and took so many wrong turns of just gathered stuff that I'll just never have a hope of ever using mm-hmm. um, that it's sort of some weirdly that that also made me feel better about not getting certain things, you know, that that you just sort of develop a faith that if you're in the right place and you're asking the right questions that you'll get enough. Um, and I think that's, you know, probably someone who's been doing this a lot longer than me will, will have come to that realization, you know, bef- before, but maybe it's just a matter of, of doing more reporting and then building up that, that sense of security. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, I did this story for the, for the times about right during the, the BP oil spill in 2010. And I think that was a real lesson for me. Um, because it was about these these volunteers who were moving digging up sea turtle nests and then moving them to Florida. So they're they're digging them up in Alabama where there's a lot of oil in the water, and they're moving the the turtle eggs to Florida so that when the turtle eggs hatch, the hatchlings won't be basically swimming to their deaths into a huge oil spill. Yeah, like moving them in like in trucks, pickup trucks. Yes, they're moving them in FedEx in FedEx trucks. FedEx trucks. Uh, and I you know I went to Alabama and I thought that the the morning after I got there they'd be digging up a nest. And for some reason that didn't end up happening or it happened maybe while I was flying there, something had gone wrong. And I, and I ended up spending, I think even more than a week there or maybe a week waiting for the next one. Cause they can only dig them up at a certain point in the, the hatchlings gestation. And it was all very complicated. So the next one wasn't for like another week. And I spent just this week in the Gulf coast of Alabama. I mean, it was, it wasn't so bad, but, um, but and then in the end, when I saw them dig up a nest, it was kind of a nothing event and I didn't even use it. Um, and instead I just described, I kind of recreated, you know, very briefly in like maybe a paragraph or two, uh, digging up the first nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that also kind of taught me, I mean, I don't know, to be honest, I would probably do this, do it the same way again. I would probably just, you know, put, put myself out and my family out to, to, because I'd be so anxious and feel like I needed that, that scene. Um, but I think it does just having experiences like that has, has given me some amount of confidence that, um, you know, there's so many different ways to write a story that if you have enough stuff, uh, you know, enough stuff can come in very different forms. And there's, there's really very rarely something that needs to happen, um, to make or break the story. And you, in this story, well, I should say, in, in most of your pieces, I find that you're, you're in there somewhere. Like you, not quite as a character, but there's, you, you definitely drop in as sort of like, you know, she told me or a little aside that sort of shows your presence. And that's even more true in this, in this piece. I think there's a whole section really of sort of you at the, at the hotel or motel sort of thinking about what you've seen and you've been listening to talk radio and you're sort of like trying to, put together all these ideas about what does, what is this monkey about? What is the chase for this monkey about? And the sightings, is that something that you intend to do usually that, or is that something that happens as a natural product of your writing that you feel comfortable putting yourself in or is it, or is that a device? What, I mean, this is a whole, this particular, the monkey story is a, is a huge kind of leap out of left field, I think, in terms of what we're talking about. I mean, I've never been in a story to this degree, I guess. Um, and so maybe 
I'll just say something about that first. I mean, I think part of that, there's a few things at work, some of them probably not so interesting. Um, you know, one is just, I've, uh, just the book. I'm definitely more in the book because I feel like, uh, at some, you know, in some level you have to be when you're writing something that, that long. Uh, so I guess I'm a little more comfortable than I, than I used to be. Um, part of it was, you know, a lot of what I was reporting about had happened a long time ago. You know, I mean, relatively speaking, it wasn't stuff that I was witnessing firsthand. And so I felt like some of the story was going to rest on how I told the information and, you know, kind of how I framed it. Um, and, uh, you know, I also just kind of saw a cool opportunity. I mean, I just, I was reading Planet of the Apes while I was there. I just, I did it because I thought it would just be funny to be reading Planet of the Apes while I was <laughs> talking to all these people about a monkey. But then it turned out to just kind of be this bizarre uh, I mean, I guess because I, I just kept going to talking to people about this monkey and especially the monkeys, the wild monkeys in, in Ocala. And people were telling me just the most, I mean, it was, they were almost impossible to believe things they were telling me about these monkeys, but they, they were very reputable people telling them to me. And and there was this... Like what kind of things? Oh, just, I mean, you know, this guy, Captain Tom, I don't think this, this wasn't in the story, but, you know, this guy, Captain Tom, who runs tours on the river. I mean, he was telling me all these things where... I, I remember being on the boat with him, thinking it through, and, and he's telling me about monkeys sort of attacking people and grabbing the the paddles away from kayakers, like jumping on kayaks and grabbing the paddles away. And he's saying these things to me, and I'm thinking, he's he's clearly making this up or he's exaggerating uh, because he's a businessman and he wants to sell you know tours on the river. And then I thought, this wouldn't help him sell tours on the river. This is terrifying. You know, he had this story about a monkey coming onto his boat for a, trying to get a loaf of bread he had left on the back of the boat and how he approached the monkey with this big, you know, rod, like this big, like one of these pole uh, boat rods. And the monkey just stood there and huffed at him and stood its ground, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I felt myself actually becoming a little paranoid. I mean, I think that's another, it's a, it's probably a weakness, but you know, when I, when I go report these stories, I get so wrapped up in them and I, I tend to just believe what people tell me initially, you know, I, I, I'm so absorbed in what they're saying that I just believe it. And then I have to think about it more critically later, uh, that that night when, you know, before I went to the hotel, I'd been driving around all day and on this boat. And so I, I just went for a walk, even though it was, you know, so I'm walking in the rain behind this, like in home Depot or something by the hotel, just trying to move my legs a bit. And I felt myself actually looking in the trees, like to make sure there weren't monkeys around, you know? Um, so so the whole section where it's where it's you know a lot of I this I that and I'm reading Planet of the Apes. I mean, I just felt like it was the only way to kind of snap back to reality. Um, you know, after hearing all these semi hard to believe, semi paranoid making uh, <laughs> details, that let's just let's just take that as far as it goes. You know, let's take it to the science fiction uh, universe. Um, so I think you know I, I didn't have an agenda to like write a more you know, first person type of story or anything. Um, yeah, I don't really like reading a lot of that stuff, but um, it just seemed like the best way to approach this. The, the, you know, the, the thing that I could, the best thing that I could add to the, to the material at that point, I guess. But more, so more generally outside of this story, do you try to keep yourself out to a certain extent or do you sort of? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I do. I mean, it's funny that you say like, you know, you mentioned like people will say she told me, um, I mean, I'll do things like that. To me, that's not a huge distraction. It's just a way of not always saying he said, she said, he said, she said. Um, so I think there's maybe, you know, in, in the writing I like most from people, I think there's, you get a sense of a of a sensibility of the, the teller of the story, but you don't, 
you aren't necessarily talked at. Um, they're not saying, and then I thought about this and I thought, thought about that. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's a legitimate, I have no problems with, with that kind of writing. Um, I think it's just a stylistic, you know, or an aesthetic preference. Um, so I think, you know, you're always going to come across in a magazine story just because it's you who's organizing the material and, you know, asking particular questions and not others or making leaps from one subject to another. Uh, and I guess that's, I hope that's mostly what the things I've done read like, um, yeah. as opposed to, I mean, I think I'm also just really insecure. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think, you know, I don't want to be the person writing about themselves, you know, I just, <laughs> it seems like, uh, I mean, I like, I like a lot of people that do that, but I just don't see myself as warranting that kind of attention or, you know, I don't know. I don't want to tax people by telling them all my feelings, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, I wasn't thinking of it like a, like a sort of like objectivity issue or, a or whether it's like really gonzo or something. I, I just get the feeling like when I read a piece of yours, it's sort of like I'm along with this sort of like somewhat quizzical traveler into this place. Like there was, you did the story for the Times Magazine about this uh, comedian, like the most popular right. comedian in America that like no one in, you know, the East Coast or West Coast has ever heard of because he does like puppet things in middle America. And there was this section where he's talking about uh, sort of like he found his favorite uh, like, dummy from when he was growing up that he had seen and he's like re, re uh, restoring it right right and and he says like he ta he's talking about when he's a kid he, he says i think man i, I just want to go see him and uh the fact that i'm standing here fixing him up right now is too wacky and then the next line is just it was wacky which is kind of like you just sort of like stepping back for one second and saying like here's you you the reader and myself like alongside this kind of ridiculous guy uh, and like, isn't this funny? I just feel like there's a way in which having yourself in there at these different points, besides just making it easier than saying he said, she said, it kind of makes it feel like you're on the same side as the reader. I don't know, to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I never, I mean, I've never thought about it to this degree, but I mean, that would be great if that's the effect, you know? I mean, I think in that case, if I'm remembering correctly, that the, you know, a, a line or two after it was wacky is the fact that we're, He's having this very intimate encounter with this childhood dummy and paying very close attention to whether the, the eyebrows are bushy enough and whatnot. And we're actually sitting on his mammoth, luxurious tour bus in a parking lot outside this arena that he's just sold out with people outside the bus chanting his <laughs> right, name. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to be able to zoom in and zoom out and, and tell stories in that kind of way automatically conveys some sense of the person who's making all those choices. I mean, obviously no one reads these things as carefully as you and I do. I mean, no one, I, you know, I don't think the average Sunday Times Magazine reader is going to pick up on something like that, but maybe just subliminally over time. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think like Nick Palmgarten and, and, and Ben McGrath, I think are like two really good examples of that too, where, uh, I mean, I, I love both those writers and I think that they do that really well where you can, you can tell that, they're in command of this material and they're picking and choosing things they want to show you. Uh, but they sort of disappear as, as narrators, you know, as human beings anyway. I mean, they're, they're a voice, but they're not, you don't need to know anything about them. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to know. Yeah. Their, their own biography. You just need to sort of trust that they're, they're showing you what, 
is important to see in some way. Right, right, right. And how do you, what's, how do you like to work with editors? I, I've had the privilege of working with you as your editor, although it's a little bit of an unusual situation because it's for, a, for Pop-Up Magazine, which is a live thing. So I have some experience in how you interact with editors, but do you, do you work really closely with your editor, develop a story all the way along, or do you try to just get it to a point and get it to them and get feedback? What's your kind of approach? Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, to be totally honest, this is the kind of question that I, I get really terrified about <laughs> answering in, in public because I, I just don't, I mean, I've never really felt like I knew what I was doing. I've never worked at a magazine really. I mean, I've, I've interned at one, but, um, and I, and it's only been in the last probably year or two. I mean, basically when we started sharing that office was when I began to meet a lot of other magazine writers. Um, so I'm always afraid that I'm going to say something about how I, how I operate. That's just completely, you know, laughable or something. But, uh, I mean, I think again, it's, I, I don't, I don't want to go to the editor unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think part of that just can, kind of comes from basic insecurity. Like I want them to feel like I've got it all under control and they don't need to worry about it until, uh, until they do. Um, so I would say that's pretty much what they want also. Yeah. I think, I think they appreciate not being, not being bothered. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think being easy to work with is a huge asset. I mean, I hope at least otherwise I've been you know sweating at night for no reason, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I basically I'll pitch the story and, and usually, especially with folks at the times, I mean, now I'm working with a new editor there for the first time. Uh, but when I had a really good working relationship with the, with the editors, it would just be, you know, we'd be very, both very clear from the outset, you know, how I was going to go forward. And then they just wouldn't hear from me until I, until I turned it in. Um, so I don't, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, people I can ask for help that aren't my editor, um, if, if I need it sometimes. And, uh, it's, it's not too elaborate of a process, I hope. So that, that actually you saying that you've never worked in a magazine sort of reminds me that I don't, I mean, I know that you went to, to Berkeley, uh, journalism school and we met sometime after that, but how, what, how did you decide to begin with to sort of pursue journalism at all because i the this is the origin story so so uh i was bit by this radioactive spider but weren't and, you like uh, a butcher at um, some point yeah i was a i was a butcher um that was in like one bio long ago and it seems to have been it's like you can't google me without finding that um yeah so basically i was um uh, i graduated from college in, in 2000 uh and i had no idea what I wanted to do. And, and my father actually died like three, three weeks. He, he went into the hospital. He, he had uh, cancer and, um, he went into the hospital like a couple days after I got home from college and then, and then he passed away about three weeks later. Oh. Um, so on top of the ordinary disorientation of being like a recent liberal arts grad with no actual career prospects, then there was this whole other level of existential um, disorientation. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I'd, I'd been writing, but not any journalism, um, and but was, was sort of always interested in journalism, but never from any real experience with it. I mean, it, to be honest, I didn't even really read too many magazines when I was in college. Um, I would read nonfiction books, but you know, I don't think I subscribed to a single magazine in, in college or even probably knew 
what some of the bigger ones were, which is kind of humiliating, I guess. But um, but I managed to get a degree anyway, um, and uh, and so I wound up in uh, in in New York eventually uh, working for a literary magazine, just like a, a literary quarterly called the Hudson Review, where I was just you know there was a three person staff and we we're publishing a lot of poetry and kind of very highbrow uh, inside baseball kind of criticism about. Alan Tate and, uh, you know, Yates and things like that. Yeah, the and highest of highbrow. Yes, yes. So uh, like brows I had never even glimpsed before. They were so so high. Um, and it was really there that I started reading a lot of magazines. You know, we had subscriptions to Harper's and The New Yorker, and they, all these things were just laying around. And um, I remember just reading, like, a few pieces in Harper's and just being completely blown away and and really feeling like I wanted to do that, that all along the you know I'd, I'd had a kind of urge to write about things but i couldn't make them up in a satisfying way you know i couldn't i couldn't make up things that were fun to write about or that you know scratch whatever itch i had and then you could actually go out and talk to other human beings and write about them and then that solved that entire problem mm-hmm. um so uh so yeah so I, I got interested in that and just started trying to do some freelancing and did a couple really small things and then some slightly, you know, I did something for Salon. That was kind of like the big, my, my big first, you know, thing that anyone had heard of. Um, and something for the Village Voice. And uh, and then I linked up with this Canadian magazine, which kind of still exists, but not in the same iteration really called Maison Neuve, which was based out of Montreal. Yeah. And they were just letting me go write these stories, you know, really long stories about the most peculiar um kind of not even really worthy subjects. Um, and I'd, I'd be curious to read some of those now because I'm sure they, they kind of all feel too long. Um, but that was when I really kind of got some experience at, at writing magazine pieces. And it was shortly after that that my, um, my girlfriend, now wife, who was living with me in New York, was coming to the Bay Area for grad school. So, um, so we were moving out and I kind of... Uh, I applied to Berkeley as a, as a, um, as um, you know, well, let's see what happens. Uh, I, I didn't go around looking for journalism schools, but then when I got accepted and visited the place, it, it seemed like too good of an opportunity to, to pass up. Um, I mean, it was really just a luxury to get to go there at that time. And then how did you, you publish that Times Magazine piece while you were there? Or it, was, you wrote it while you were there and you published it later? Or did it actually come out while you were in journalism school? No, it actually came out when I was in journalism school. I'd also done a, like I did a piece for Harper's when I was there first. And then I actually did a talk of the town piece. And then I did the Times Magazine piece. So I, I basically never stopped freelancing. I mean, I had, I was starting to get some real momentum freelancing when I left New York. Um, and I treated Berkeley almost like a think tank or something, you know, a place where I could go and I would still be doing exactly what I was doing. But now I had these people to go to for advice and I had the comfortable feeling of being part of some, you know, community of striving kids, and we were all in it together. And and I was really actively trying to get the kind of experience and connections that would give me the faith to make a go of freelancing once I left, because I, I didn't really think I was going to be cut out for anything else. I was really terrible at at newspaper writing and reporting. Um, you know, I tried to get you have to do an internship in between your two years at Berkeley, and I I just kept trying to get these newspaper internships and 
I just couldn't get a single one. And people, you know, these recruiters would come and I, you know, my tie would be crooked or, you know, I, I would just like I had my resume was formatted incorrectly and just really, it was really embarrassing, you know, and, uh, and, and just, I couldn't get one of these jobs. I couldn't get one of these interests for the summer. You know, many of them were unpaid. Um, That's nuts. And then, so, so I just felt like, well, it's, it's going to be me on my own or nothing, you know? Yeah, well, so much magazine freelancing, I feel like it's driven by fear. Like, right. it's just, <laughs> there's fear about over your income. There's fear over the fact that you don't have any other skills. And then there's a fear at a certain age. You're sort of like, well, now I can't keep saying I'll go to law school if this doesn't work out. Like, that's pretty much all you got. Right. I think I'm just getting to that age now, <laughs> actually, where, um, yeah, I'm sort of realizing that it's this is going to be it for a while. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It is. I mean, so much of the both the lifestyle and then the ability to be the least bit successful at this, I think is um, just as much emotional and constitutional, you know, about your own constitution as, as it is about any real skill set. Um, Cause you just have to be able to keep this whole other layer of anxiety and, and issues that have nothing to do with actual work. You have to be able to keep it relatively calm enough to, to be able to sit down and get anything done. And how do you, how do you, look at sort of other writers or read other magazines because i always thought one of the hardest things was even if you're not a sort of really competitive person or a person who gets jealous of other people if you are writing feature stories for magazines every week and every month there's you know 50 examples of people doing what you're doing in a very public way yeah better that, yeah that you can read and say oh shit in fact the only thing that i remember about that I knew about you before I met you was that our mutual friend Jen Khan said, uh, oh, you got to meet this guy, John. He's great. And he's doing all these stories. Like he's still in journalism school and he's, you should read the story in Harper's. And I read them and I can't, I can distinctly remember a thing like, who does this, who is this guy? Why is it? This isn't fair. <laughs> I, I could have, this is a topic I could have written on, but I can't write like that. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's just the way we live, isn't it? I mean, that happens to me three to four times a week, at least. And with Twitter, it's so much worse, you know, because it's not just, I mean, the stuff is just constantly flashing at you. Um, yeah, even the old stuff. Right, right. All times are just crunched. That. It's, you know, it's like now you're you're competing against like, you know, Tom Wolf in the 70s. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. You're asking me how to deal with that. I have no idea. How do you manage that? Yeah, I have no idea. How do you manage that? Uh, well, I, 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 by getting to know people, that was the main way. Because I think if for me, if I was sitting alone in my apartment, my tiny apartment that I could barely afford, and staring at the computer, and then all these magazines are coming in the mail, and I'm thinking like, who the fuck are these people? And there's just more of them all the time. And God, they seem annoying. And then if I met them, I would think, oh, this person's amazing. And I think that was what really changed it for me. I got started getting to know magazine writers and the ones that you're annoyed by their success, you realize, like, first of all, they're also very insecure. And second of all, they're really nice people who are just trying as hard as you are. So that right. was, that's been Well, I'm going gonna, gonna to back up. I wouldn't say you, you seem a little more vindictive and uh, I'm not annoyed by these things. I've just completely I just want to kind of scrunch up into a ball and and hide. Um, so you seem to have a lot more aggression to work through about, the, about this subject. But uh, I have both. I have both. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you said, though, because I've always felt like, you know, everyone, whenever you talk to people about this, they always want to know what, you know, is it, what's it like being living on the West coast as opposed to New York and doing this work. And I've always clung 
to the idea, perhaps fraudulently, that there's a benefit to living away from the center of publishing because you're not constantly running into these people. Um, you know, you, you don't have to constantly measure yourself against, um, you know, other people. And I think that there's some truth to that, but I also think that what you're saying is, is absolutely right. Um, that it does help to meet people. And like I said, it's only been in the last few years that I really feel like I've, I've gotten to know, especially people sort of of our generation. Um, you know, I'm just beginning to meet a lot of those people and get to know them. And then, and then it starts to feel more collegial. I mean, it, it does feel like you, you start rooting for particular people um, as opposed to, you know, having to avert your eyes, you know, after you read the first graph because you're just too scared and ashamed. Um, so I think, I think both things are, both, both sides of it are, are true, that there's, there's a benefit to keeping everything as a complete abstraction and just trying to do your work as best as you, as you can, which is, for the most part, what I've done. Um, but I could imagine that that being really plugged into those worlds is also also has its comfort. Yeah, I think there's just so many ways for it to make you feel terrible. Like there's there's just so much rejection. There's like rejection. life? Are you talking about life? Just there's so many well, ways for life, life to make you feel terrible. Let's talk about rejection in life. <laughs> no, I just I mean in the the process of freelancing is just it's it involves so much rejection that there's lots of ways to go in terms of rolling up into a ball. Right. Um, right. Any kind of human connection you can have with other people who are doing it is, uh, always strikes me as being valuable. And I mean, I do, Oh, here's a dog. We've got a dog visitor. Hey, Ginger. Um, I mean, I do think, I hope at least that some of this is a function of age too. I mean, I think with, with every career, the more you're going to do it, the, the more comfortable, hopefully you'll feel, doing it um and i don't you know i don't mind I, I think that's also part of what makes it exciting is that i still feel like every time that i go to do a story um you know i approach it as if i just really don't know much about what i'm doing <laughs> um you know and that mm-hmm. I, I have to figure it out uh and that's what makes it really thrilling i mean i never presume to to think that the way that i do reporting and writing is the best way and in fact i do the opposite i, I presume that i'm i'm doing it in some horribly inefficient way. And if only I could unlock the secret of Evan Ratliff and, um, and then I would, you know, I'd get it all done much faster and it wouldn't be so terrible. Um, I always assumed that the people that went to journalism school knew a bunch of stuff that I didn't know. No, they don't really, they don't really teach you that. I mean, I think that the real benefit of journalism school is just getting to talk to more writers and the more established writers. And then you collect these, um, these monologues of, of these people that you meet who are, who are, talking to you, you know, talking you through their experiences, how they did a particular story. And you just collect all these things and then you can draw on them when you need to. Oh, this is, this is kind of, I'm facing a situation that's kind of like this situation that, that so-and-so faced, or at least it, it gives you a, a sense that um, problems are inevitable um, and you can, you can work around them. And I'm, I'm starting to see, I mean, I'm starting to see in some reporting, I think the book had a lot to do with it of just having to do so much reporting you know, just day after day after day, um, I'm starting to see some excitement in in that too, and not just worry. You know, some excitement in in that. If if I just kind of assume it's going to work out one way or another, it can be a real fun adventure to find the path from here to there. You know, hopefully, just as you as you do more, that that excitement starts to outweigh the the horror um, of of messing up.
I'm Evan Ratliff. This has been the Longform Podcast. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. You can find them at www.longform.org. And I'm with The Atavist. You can find us at atavist.com. Our editor is Lauren Kirshner. And uh, special thanks to Doug McGray for setting up the audio on the far end of this interview. And thanks to John Moellum for participating. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.